We truly are blessed to host a conference like this. In doing so, we have 10 lessons in the book of Revelation by 10 different Bible teachers. And it's been a few years since J.B. Hickson has been here, but we're glad he's back. Don't believe any of his Viking jokes. Um, uh, but otherwise, he usually preaches the truth. We really do appreciate that. He uh, is the director of Not By Works Ministry. He is the pastor of Plum Creek Chapel, which is in Sedalia, Colorado, just um, outside of Denver on the way to Colorado Springs, kind of. And in doing so, we're glad that he could be here, not only for our pastor's conference, but now for our All Believers portion as well. And in doing so, he's going to talk to us about one second before the second coming of Christ. So this time, we're privileged to have Dr. J.B. Hicks. Amen. Thank you. It, is, uh, it really is always a pleasure. I've missed being here. Uh, circumstances of life and various other commitments have prevented me from coming uh, for a while. But this is uh, just one of my favorite places to be. You're always so warm and friendly and... Um, you know, notwithstanding your allegiance to either the Packers or Vikings, you're all right. You're, a, you're, you're not a bad, bad crew. So I want to thank uh, Pastor Roxer and thank uh, you all for letting me come. I want to thank our home church, Plum Creek Chapel, as uh, Pastor mentioned. If you're ever in the Denver metro area on a weekend or a Wednesday, come see us. Um, most of the time I'm there when we're not traveling, and we'd love to have you. We've already had some folks from DBC come up as they've traveled through, and always a, a joy. So uh, thank you for letting us be here. It's, 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 I learned a new fact about Duluth when I was uh, headed out for this trip. Uh, someone in my church mentioned, well, you know, uh, Duluth is the home of Bob Dylan, or at least he got his start here or lived here or some connection. He was born here, so there you go. And uh, now I'm not, you know, really a, a Bob Dylan fan per se. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, Dylan's greatness has come and gone, and Speaking of greatness coming and going, uh, Dale, uh, I noticed that the Minnesota Vikings are not off to a particularly good start <laughs> this season. That was a little forced, wasn't it, the way I set that up, but oh well, whatever. But I do have a legitimate Minnesota Vikings joke, um, and it has to do with uh, Tom Brady. How do you keep Tom Brady, who everyone loves to hate, most of all me, uh, from winning another Super Bowl? Well, you trade him to the Minnesota Vikings. So, and, and <laughs> I'm surprised I haven't been muted yet. But, uh, uh, but you know, the, honestly, the funnest part about creating this graphic wasn't, you know, ribbing the Vikings. It was finding a Tom Brady picture online and then cropping off his head. That just... <laughs> I have to confess, there was something about that that just gave me probably sinful pleasure. But anyway, um, you know, when we study the end times, at least for me, I find some, if I'm not careful, I slip into a sort of uh, like an academic or forensic type perspective where we, we like to identify lists and the sequence of events and we like to create charts and we tend to focus on uh, the details about uh, what will happen, and we're doing that a lot in this conference, and we should. Every word of God is uh, inspired, and we want to deal with the details and build a picture of what God has revealed to us in His Word. Um, we like to 
compare Scripture with Scripture and cross-reference between Old and New Testaments, say Daniel and Revelation. We like to display our conclusions in different diagrams and, and charts. But what I really set out to do tonight, and I hope this will come through as we work through our way through these three chapters, is kind of go beyond the theology of it all and imagine really what things will be like on earth as the culmination of God's plan of the ages comes to fruition. So I'm calling it one second before the second coming. That's just a, just a title. Obviously, we're going to be dealing with more than 60 or more than you know, one second right before the Lord returns. But these chapters really are the lead up to the battle of Armageddon and the, the glorious return of our Savior. And that's, uh, he's going to take the throne. He's going to rule and reign over a perfect kingdom of peace and righteousness and justice. And it's, it's the, the culmination of everything that the prophets of old talked about, everything that we long for. Um, and so as we look at chapters 14 to 16, I want to paint a picture in your mind's eye. What will it be like just moments before the triumphant return of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So when we leave tonight, you know, he won't have come back. He doesn't come back until tomorrow morning. And Andy, no, it's not Andy. Uh, somebody is going to deal with that tomorrow morning. But I want you to, to really think about uh, and picture these things that are going to be happening on earth. We've already looked at, you know, the, the seals and the trumpets and and now we're kind of leading up to the very end. So it wouldn't be a message on eschatology without at least throwing a couple charts up here to give us perspective. And I think this is essentially kind of where, uh, where we all come down on this. Although seal, trumpet, bowls, there's different views on exactly when uh, they all are. I take it that the seals um, are uh, in the first half and trumpets and bowls in the second half. And that yellow arrow there that you see on the screen is actually pointing to the, the section that we're dealing with here at the very end of the seven-year uh, tribulation. So my overview of the book of Revelation, which I think you have in your chart, I mean in your handout uh, there, um, it's actually a fairly easy book to outline. A lot of people think the book of Revelation is complicated, and the devil's done a good job of convincing people uh, of that. But it's really not all that complicated. Um, you've got uh, you know, the introduction of the revelation of Christ in chapter 1, the letters to the churches, and then uh, the theodicy, the justification for the wrath that's about to be poured out on the earth when the Lamb of God opens the seals. Uh, then you've got the seals as I see it in the first half, then the trumpets and bowls in the second half. Uh, the stuff in the black text there is all uh, sort of supplemental information. Some uh, commentators or scholars will call it interludes. Uh, just stuff that isn't necessarily sequential, but just additional information about what's sort of going on in this final seven-year uh, period. Uh, and then, of course, the second coming uh, and the Battle of Armageddon there at the end. And then the kingdom, which I take the kingdom as eternal. You know, when he reigns, he shall reign forever and ever. Uh, the first thousand years on the old heaven and old earth. We call that the millennium, based on Revelation 20. And then the eternal state, the new heavens and and the new earth. So we're focused in, at least on my diagram uh, here, on the bowl uh, judgments. And it's not really drawn to scale because I believe the bowl judgments are uh, kind of compacted into the very end of the seven year tribulation. 
And I think we get that sense as we read through in these chapters we're looking at tonight uh, and see the urgency. So, I, you know, we can't put an exact time frame on it because the Bible is silent on it, but I'm just getting this, I get the sense when I read it that we're dealing with the last 24 to 36 hours of the tribulation and these vile judgments, these bold judgments are just coming on the earth and, and things are reaching this culmination. Uh, so uh, we'll start with Revelation uh, chapter 14. Um, from the revelation about the defeat of the forces of evil and the mark of the beast that Arnold Fruchtenbaum just talked about, John turns to the triumph of the forces of good. Uh, Bob Thomas says, it's, quote, it's the opposite side of the picture, a victorious stance of the Lamb and His followers after their temporary setbacks portrayed in chapter 13. So chapter 14 essentially answers two questions. What about the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, those Jewish evangelists that have been spreading the gospel throughout the seven-year period that were introduced back in chapter 7? And, and then what happens to this beast and his followers that were just introduced? And chapter 14, uh, like the four chapters uh, before it, is an interlude in the sequential order of events that John is revealing. It's uh, what we call a proleptic. Uh, proleptic is a kind of fancy word you'll hear a lot tonight and probably heard a lot already in this conference, but it means foreshadowing or anticipatory. It's sort of explaining something that as if it's happened before it happens. We call that pro a prolepsis, and so this is a proleptic a chapter, and uh, I thought of a good example of illustrating the meaning of, of uh, proleptic. So, uh, you, the little-known story that, that came out of the, uh, the 1975 divisional round playoff game between, you thought you were through with the Vikings jokes, uh, be, between the Vikings and the Cowboys, uh, a reporter reported this. He said, you know, as the Cowboys players were coming on the field and the Vikings players were out there warming up, apparently... One Cowboys player hollered, you're dead meat. Well, that's obviously a metaphor, a figure of speech. The game hadn't even started yet. Uh, but the metaphor, dead meat, used in the present tense there, uh, as we all know, turned out to be proleptic. It turned out to be <laughs> correct. So uh, I'll never forget the first time I spoke here. I'm pretty sure it was the first time. I actually showed a clip of the, uh, the famous Hail Mary with Drew Pearson. It's the only time I've ever been booed when I, and I was actually a little bit afraid because there are a lot of you and one of me. But anyway, but uh, I've learned how gracious you are so I can, I can continue to pick on the Vikings. But, so chapter 14 provides encouragement by pointing ahead to the ultimate triumph for those who refuse the mark of the beast. It is as if before getting to the final judgments of God's wrath, the seals, God says something like, I know things are getting bad. The wrath of Satan through the beast is uncontrollable. The tyranny is almost unbearable. But hold on. Blessing awaits. Justice is coming. And so the material presented in chapter 14 is essentially treated in chronological fashion, starting in the end of or the latter part of chapter 16 all the way through uh, 22. So we see in chapter 14 a series of declarations, as it were, directed at or directed about anyway, various audiences. And so as I outline this, I say first uh, we see a declaration that's really targeted toward the 144,000, and it's a message of well done, well done. Uh, as a picture of the millennium, verses 1 through 5 show the Lamb 
in place of the beast. The father's name as a seal on the mark of the, in place of the mark of the beast. And the glorious Mount Zion in place of the satanically controlled earth. So it's, it's quite a picture. Uh, we read, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. If you remember back in chapter 7, we know they were sealed uh, in that manner. Uh, then I looked, here that phrase introduces a new scene here in chapter 14, each time it's used, as it did twice in chapter uh, 13. Behold, John says, this is, this is a significant, great vision that he's about to recount. Um, John saw this proleptic scene at, of a time yet future at the end of the Great Tribulation when Christ will return to the earth. His second coming, of course, doesn't take place till chapter 19, but he saw it happening in his vision here. And he saw the Lamb standing on the earth, specifically on Mount Zion, with the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that God had sealed for the Tribulation uh, before him. And he paints a vivid contrast between the Lamb standing and the dragon in chapter 12 pursuing, and the evil beasts of 13 rising up. And here's the lamb standing there. And I heard a voice from heaven, an angelic choir sings out, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. A new song in the Old Testament was a song of praise to God for His specific new mercies in a particular Instance and in response to his mighty acts of deliverance or provision or whatever it might be. Uh, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. And then we see three occurrences of the pronoun these, identifying how these 144,000 are worthy of special honor. Well, first, these 144,000 deserved special honor because they remained celibate during their seven-year ministry. They had not had physical relations with women. The nature of their calling and purpose at this pivotal time in human history was too great to be distracted by normal courtship and romance. Paul, if you recall, had said something similar to the Corinthians, encouraging them to remain unmarried because of the nature of the distressing times in which they lived, 1 Corinthians 7. But second, these 144,000 deserve special honor because they followed the Lamb faithfully during their lives. And this, of course, was extremely difficult given the time in which they lived, the tribulation. Remember, the 144,000 were sealed for protection, but that does not mean that they didn't face the same tensions and stress and temptations and things that other uh, people did after they got saved during the tribulation. And then third, these 144,000 evangelists deserve special honor because they represent the first of many other Jewish believers who will enter the millennium as living uh, believers. And I was talking to someone at the break about when different believers of different ages will be resurrected to enter the kingdom. And, uh, and we, I have a chart in our chart book that talks about this, but we know from Daniel 12 and Isaiah 26 that at the second coming, any tribulation saints that died, any Old Testament saints that died, will all be resurrected to experience the kingdom. It doesn't mean they're going to reign with Christ or have the special privileges and position in the kingdom that the church has, the bride of Christ, but they will all be in the kingdom together. So again, if you go back here to what we're looking at here, it's right here at the end of, 
of the, uh, the seven-year tribulation, and the 144,000 have been serving and, and sharing the gospel throughout this, entire, uh, throughout this entire time. So then we go to verse 5, And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And I want to take a moment to kind of talk about this. The 144,000 being described as without fault were those who had not fallen prey to the greatest deception ever seen on earth. Remember what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. Multiple times He, he challenges the future generation that will be alive during the tribulation of Jews, is who He's talking to in particular, to be not deceived. In fact, the, the, the Olivet Discourse begins with the, that word, be not deceived. And we know Jesus says it will be the, the greatest time of, of deception in the history of the earth. But what else do we know? We know from 2 Timothy 3.13 that in the present age, the church age, deception is always getting worse and worse and worse. And so it follows from multiple passages that this final seven-year period when the wrath of God is being poured out on the earth and just before the Messiah comes back and takes the throne, that we will see incredible deception. But these 144,000 are to be commended because they didn't fall prey. Just because they were sealed, remember, doesn't mean that they might not have been. Uh, they, they, they rejected the lies of the Antichrist. They rejected the mark of the beast. They didn't go around repeating the lies that have been pouring forth from the one world government leaders. Sound familiar? Uh, they didn't point to Romans 13 and say, we have to submit to the government no matter what. Point me to the nearest drive through tattoo center where we can line up and get the government mark. No, they resisted the transhumanist agenda to build back better by creating Humans 2.0. Transhumanism is a key part, by the way, of the Luciferian uh, agenda. I've talked about it a lot in some series that I've uh, done recently. Transhumanism is the merging of man and machine. It's the redefining of humanity, and it's a direct attack on the image of God and man. And it's going to reach a culmination during the tribulation, if not before, because it's the one frontier that Satan and his co-conspirators on earth have not conquered. They've conquered so many of the foundational truths of our Creator. Language, gender, marriage, all of it. And, but they're and they've attacked life through all of their eugenics program and abortion and so forth. But the one thing Satan hasn't been able to do, though he's tried, is to create life. And that's what they're working uh, towards. And the Lucifer, Luciferian uh, Klaus Schwab has said repeatedly, and if you read anything of his, you, you see this come through, that what he calls 4IR, the fourth industrial revolution, will affect the very existence of our human experience. This is what's known as the Great Reset, or the World Economic Forum and its cronies call it the, the, the fourth industrial revolution. It's basically techno-tyranny. And if you don't think that this is who's in the driver's seat right now, not suggesting he's the candidate for the Antichrist, uh, well, he seems like a good candidate to me, but I'm not suggesting he's a, the Antichrist. I'm just saying right now, in Satan's battle plan, this guy's pretty much in the driver's seat. And if you need evidence of that, just look at the, the big um, spending bill or budget cap or whatever they're voting on in, in the United States Congress right now, uh, what they're calling it. What are they calling it? Build back better. Where did they get that phrase? From the World Economic Forum. This is the same guy who says you'll own nothing and you'll be happy about it. 
And look at some of these quotes as we think about what will be going on during that final seven-year period about trying to create life and infuse a transhumanist agenda on the world. The mind, he says, the mind-boggling innovations triggered by the fourth industrial revolution from biotechnology to AI, artificial intelligence, are redefining what it means to be human. He says, the future will challenge our understanding of what it means to be human from both a biological and social standpoint. He says, quote, already advances in neurotechnologies and biotechnologies are forcing us to question what it means to be human. And that's why we have this whole trans movement. You know, trans is a prefix that has become uh, widely used and sort of a catch-all to basically change the meaning of anything you want it uh, to mean, right? So you've got transgender, you know, where a person is a male or a female. If they, if they suddenly add trans to the beginning, now they're whatever they want to be. And there's 50, 60, 70, 80 of them. Or transracial. You can add it before anything. In fact, I was thinking you could be trans Super Bowl champions. And, you know, that, that might be the only way. I, I, I don't know. And then, and then I'm having way too much fun with this. But then, then I got to thinking, you know, what about this? What if, what, if, what if, think with me on this. What if someone who was never elected president could claim they were the trans president of the United States? I mean... You know, you can be whatever you want if you just add trans to it, right? All you got to do is add the word trans and suddenly you can be whatever you want. So, verses 1 through 5 present a powerful, satisfying picture of the triumph of the 144,000 at Christ's return. They served faithfully. They completed their mission. And an untold number of souls came to faith because of their ministry. Well done. And then in the next section, we see a message for unbelievers during this time, reminding them of the urgency of the hour. So I see this as time is short. And having described the scene of the 144,000 witnesses at the conclusion of their service, the scene now shifts to the heavens, where an angel proclaims the gospel. Uh, the baton is evidently passed in the final hours of the tribulation to a supernatural gospel proclamation rather than an earthly missionary one. And let me explain why I think this is the case. And uh, we heard Arnold Fruchtenbaum essentially espouse the, the same view. So I feel like I'm not at least alone on this, even though I know there's some differences of opinion. But notice, then I saw, another signaling another vision uh, uh, on earth, uh, another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach. The word preach there is euangelizo, to proclaim the good news, to preach the gospel. It's eternal because it has eternal significance. And, you know, scholars really are kind of all over the map as they try to identify what is this everlasting gospel. Of course, the text is pretty crystal clear about what the message is. We see it in the very next verse. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give Him glory. For the hour of His judgment has come. This is leading up to that one second before the second coming. Worship Him who made the heavens and the earth, heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. But I want you to, to understand that by theological inference and comparing Scripture with Scripture, I think we're on fair ground to say that the everlasting gospel was more than just a reminder about the soon coming judgment. And I'd like to suggest there may be more going on here. Uh, again, this is only an inference. It's an example of what my mentor, Dr. Mike Stallard, who I sat under for six years, 
calls theological synthesis, comparing a scripture with scripture. And there are, by the way, some regulating principles that good hermeneutics requires when comparing scripture with scripture. And I think this, what I'm about to, to explain, really checks the boxes. doesn't mean it's you know, inspired exegetical truth, but I think there's some, some food for thought here. So in my view, as we're going to see in a second, the direct message to believers to hang on, judgment is near, it's going to be okay, in earnest, that comes in verse 8, which we'll see momentarily. But here in verses 6 and 7, I really think unbelievers are in view, and let me give you a few reasons why that's the case. First of all, these verses come immediately on the heels of the reference to the 144,000 in verses 1 through 5. Well, who are they? According to chapter 7, they were missionaries who went through the whole world evangelizing and reaped a great harvest of every nation, tribe, tongues, and people. And so what do we see if we go back to chapter 7? We see this harvest of souls, and we notice that they come from every nation, tribe, peoples, and tongues. If you go back to the text, who are the targets of this angel? Same phrase, nation, everyone from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Just as the ministry of the 144,000 resulted in a harvest of souls from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, the focus of the angelic evangelist will be people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Having just referenced the 144,000 and their faithful evangelistic work, the vision now turns to the urgency of the hour. In the waning moments of the tribulation, one second, as it were, before the second coming, God will use an angelic evangelist to share the gospel. Notice what he says, uh, having the everlasting gospel. And so it's my suggestion, and it's just a suggestion, but I think it makes a lot of sense that the reference to the gospel here has evangelistic overtones. Moreover, and this is some more theological synthesis, I think it's worth noting that this is not the first time God has used an angelic messenger to announce the gospel, the good news. It's interesting to me that at both the first advent of Christ and now here at the second advent of Christ, an angel announced the good news. If you go back to Luke 2, then an angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings. Bring good tidings. There it is. Euangelitso. Proclaim the gospel. And notice they shall be to all people. Very similar to what we see in the ministry of the 144,000 and uh, this angel. And by the way, this proclamation in the hills outside Jerusalem in Bethlehem uh, was accompanied by a declaration of glory to God. Glory to God. And that's what we see back in uh, the text. Fear God and give Him uh, glory. So if you think about the everlasting gospel this way, when you compare Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, the 144,000 missionaries passages and Luke 2 and the evangelistic context of all of these passages, I think that it's reasonable to conclude that here in Revelation 14, 6, at the 11th hour, God is tasking an angel to make one final gospel proclamation to the world that judgment is coming. So believe in Christ. Does the text say that? Of course not. I'm not can't be dogmatic about it, but I think there are times we know in Scripture when the term gospel can mean the saving message. I've written a book about that, and of course Tom Stiegel's book is, uh, is the preeminent view on that. Um, so I think this message, fear God, that the text talks about, doesn't necessarily have to be the explicit, complete message. We see a lot of times in historical narratives, such as Acts 16, where uh, you know, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That, we know they said more than that. 
And perhaps, perhaps, the angel is saying more as well, given his target audience. And by the way, let's not forget the words of Christ himself as he described this future tribulation to the disciples on the Mount of Olives when he said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations, and then the end will come. See, I believe that uh, Jesus was saying here, and by the way, verses 4 to 14, in my view of the Olivet Discourse, are kind of giving a summary of the whole seven years, and then he kind of zeroes in in 15 to 31 on the second half after the abomination of desolation. So basically, Jesus is summing up his summary of the, the, the seven years, which parallels perfectly, by the way, with the sealed judgments, the description that he gives. I think he's summing it up by saying, before Christ comes back, before I come back, the gospel of the kingdom will reach every corner of the earth. So we, we don't have a promise that in the present age that will be true. The rapture could happen. It's imminent. It could have happened at any moment. And there very likely will be unreached people groups on the earth. may not be. If the Lord tarries is coming, we should strive hard to fulfill the Great Commission and preach the gospel everywhere. But we do have a promise in Scripture that prior to the return of Christ to establish His kingdom, everyone on earth will have heard the gospel. So it's my supposition, and again, it's nothing more than that, that perhaps the 144,000 having only seven years and in the midst of chaos, I mean, you think it's hard to travel now with TSA, just imagine trying to hop on a plane during the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. They may or may not uh, be able to reach every single person. But in keeping with this prophecy of Christ Himself, prior to the return of Christ, and these chapters are leading us right up to that moment, God says, there's still some people that haven't heard Go proclaim the gospel so that by the time Christ comes back, everyone will have heard the gospel. So if we go back to the text here in verse 7, he goes on to say in this proclamation, For the hour of his judgment has come. Time is short. Judgment is near. Believe the gospel. And the angel spoke loudly with this. Um, interestingly, he says, the, the, the worship Him who made the heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water, and those all correspond to the first four bold judgments, as we will see in a few moments. Well, in the next section is where I believe we see a message with direct application for believers. In 8 to 13, we see tribulation believers stand firm. So in this section, John heard three more announcements that provide motivation uh, for remaining faithful to God and resisting the beast. Those who had gotten saved... After the rapture, and I believe anyone can get saved after the rapture. Uh, if, you're not, if you've not trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation, and your perspective is, well, I'm not sure about all this, I'm a bit of a skeptic, I think I'll wait and see if millions of people disappear, and then I'll know maybe this message is true, and then I'll believe the gospel then, I think you're making a terrible mistake. Because today is the day of salvation. You're not promised tomorrow regardless of God's eschatological plan. Tomorrow is like a vapor. It could be gone like that. Uh, not only that, but if you were blinded by Satan's deception today not to believe the gospel, it's only going to be worse in the tribulation. So you need to believe the gospel today, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But, but I do believe that according to Scripture, there will be people, many of them, from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language, that get saved. And they need to be encouraged. Many of them will be martyred. They'll be beheaded. Some of them will hide out and survive, and there will be a, a, quite a contingent that is alive in physical bodies at the return of Christ to whom Jesus will say, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. has to be because there have to be people to populate the kingdom. Uh, but he the, the, they, they gives a word of encouragement here 
the, the tribulation saints had not crossed the finish line yet in terms of enduring to the end. They needed to hang on and keep trusting God. And by giving them a glimpse of the future, they're, they're energized and incentivized to keep on keeping on. Remember, going back to the Olivet Discourse, what Jesus said just before He promised that the gospel of the kingdom would be preached to the uttermost parts of the earth and then the end will come. He says, He who endures to the end will be saved, that is, delivered into the kingdom. Those who survive until the end of the tribulation will be delivered into the kingdom. This is a statement of fact. Um, it's, it's a word of encouragement. Get ready. Things are going to get tough, but hold on. The word endures is a word that we should all be familiar with, and I'm sure in this uh, crowd we are, but it's the word hupomeno, to resist, to hold one's ground, to not be moved. It's used 17 times in the New Testament, usually translated endure. The idea is to be tested and pass. It's used, for example, twice in James. First, when he says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. Temptation there is perosmos, literally trial. Um, uh, blessed is the man who endures trials. For when he's approved, when he's passed the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those uh, who love him. Um, you know, loving God brings special rewards. And as someone has said, the notion that loving God is automatic and anyone who doesn't love God, somehow they're not a believer, is, is ludicrous. Um, Jesus exhorted the disciples in the upper room that they needed to love God, and He wouldn't do that if it was automatic. As one scholar put it, in no circumstances more than in trials does the presence or absence of love for God in a Christian become more apparent. And blessed is the man who endures in those situations. James also says, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. And then he references Job. Same word, hupomeno. And then we also see it in 1 Peter, for example, twice, and it's translated in the New King James, they were, take it patiently. What credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable for God. That's the same word, hupomeno. And that's exactly what... Uh, this section of Revelation 14 is going to be challenging and exhorting believers to do, to stand firm, to stand firm, be patient, hang on a little longer. It's going to be worth it all. It's a motivation for those who are still alive at this point, uh, just before the second coming, uh, to stand firm. So let's take a look at verse 8. Another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. So the first motivation is this, Babylon will come crashing down. Of course, by this point, Babylon was the center of the tyranny and the evil that was emanating from the wrath of Satan through the Antichrist. And this is the first mention of Babylon in Revelation, and it's another proleptic message that anticipates or foreshadows Babylon's fall, which is described in detail in uh, chapter 18. The repetition of fallen here is for emphasis, and the aorist tense of the verb stresses the certainty of this action, though it hasn't happened yet, it will. And so I believe uh, the reference here is to literal rebuilt uh, Babylon. And I realize Dr. Woods is going to be speaking on this in earnest tomorrow. And by the way, who better on planet Earth to deal with the subject of Babylon than Andy Woods? Um, if you don't have his uh, book, uh, any of his books, you should, you should get them. Uh, so I, but I do want to take a moment, to, since it comes up in our text, to at least summarize the role of Babylon in the end time so we can appreciate, really appreciate, how encouraging it would be for those who are alive at this stage of the end game of the tribulation to be reminded that Babylon's reign of terror is nearly over. And so as we think about identifying Babylon, Babylon is the seat 
of the Antichrist's power during the tribulation. And I've always liked to use the illustration of uh, Hollywood uh, here in America. You know, Hollywood is, uh, well, it's a satanic place. In fact, the name Hollywood comes from the Hollywood tree, which witches would take branches from to, to cast their spells and stuff. But it's also the, the place where movies and entertainment and TV shows emanate from. So if we take, for example, the film Jaws, you know, Spielberg's, you know, 1970, whatever it was, five or six uh, hit. Uh, you, you might say, for example, that, uh, you know, Jaws uh, emanated from Hollywood, that it came out of Hollywood. There are a lot of different ways you might say that. Well, that would be true, but the reality is uh, Jaws, as you may know, was actually uh, filmed on Martha's Vineyard. And I've actually been to Martha's Vineyard, preached at a church there, and I know it may come as a shock to think that there are Bible grace churches on Martha's Vineyard, but I found one, and, uh, and they're preaching the clear gospel. Um, and I've been to this dock where much of the film was, uh, movie was, uh, was filmed. So when someone says Jaws came out of Hollywood, they're not wrong, but it would also be correct to say Jaws came out of Martha's Vineyard. And I think similarly, Babylon will literally be re rebuilt, but it's going to have political, religious, and economic tentacles of influence throughout the world during the final seven-year tribulation. So geographically and Politically, it refers to the headquarters of the beast during the tribulation, the literal rebuilt Babylon. But it's also going to have a religious component, which refers to the one world religion, including the apostate church. And uh, the beast is going to use that to deceive the world. Well, where is that? Could be Rome, perhaps. Makes logical sense. We don't know uh, for sure. Economically, uh, it refers to the center of world commerce and power during the tribulation. And I've often... Uh, pointed out that if the United States is still around at the rapture and if the Lord tarries much longer, I think it's pretty self-evident that it probably won't be. The trajectory is not good. Not be, trying to be a uh, pessimist, but we've got to be honest about the trajectory of things. Uh, and the Luciferians have wanted to destroy America from the beginning. It's the one thing standing in the way of the one world system. They know that we are still a, a nation of free constitutional freedom and guns and Christians and so forth. And so we're, we're, we're a problem. And so they've been in their writings talking about the destruction of America for a long time. We don't know when the Lord's going to come back and we're going to meet Him in the clouds. It could be before America is uh, destroyed. It might not be. But if it's still here, it's quite possible that the economic center of the uh, beast's uh, reign of terror might be someplace like New York City, which is currently pretty much the uh, economic center of the world. But the point is that the writer's making here is that Babylon will fall. And that will provide great motivation to believers to stand firm. It's almost over. Back to our text, the second motivation to stand firm is this. All who worship the beast will face eternal damnation. And the goal of this warning is to alert potential beast worshipers to their doom if they follow the beast, but also to encourage believers to remain faithful. The beast will kill people who do not follow him, but those who follow the beast will receive an even worse judgment in all of eternity. The combination of, of wrath, the Greek, here the Greek word is thumos, not orge, and indignation, which is orge, stresses the reality and severity of God's hostility. He says, uh, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Quite a rhetorical 
way to, to, to say something that is so horrible. Uh, normally, people added water to wine to dilute it, but God will not weaken His punishment in eternity of the beast worshipers. Uh, believers, of course, never have to fear uh, the wrath of God. Jesus said, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He's a son of wrath if you're not a believer. Romans says, Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath uh, through Him. And we see in Colossians, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, unbelievers, which Paul tells the, uh, the church there, in which you yourself once walked when you lived in them. And of course, in 1 Thessalonians, he reminds us twice that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I recently preached uh, on the distinction between God's punishment and God's discipline, and I appreciated having the opportunity to kind of brainstorm with Pastor Dennis about this. And uh, it's, it's an interesting uh, contrast here when you kind of look at the difference. So God's punishment, obviously, is for unbelievers. He never punishes believers. And, well, I'm not, there we go. And then it's exercised in justice because they rejected Christ. And it involves God's wrath. It's not for their good. It's for their condemnation both now and in eternity. And at the point in the tribulation that we're dealing with tonight, they're facing the wrath. And I believe they're all connected. God's discipline, of course, is completely different. It's for believers. It's exercised in grace, not justice, because, they, uh, because we disobeyed. Uh, it involves God's love, not His wrath. It's for our good, and it's also for our correction, not condemnation. And it's only here uh, on earth. But if we go back to the text, we see the smoke of their torment ascends, listen to this, forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. An endless trail of ascending smoke is the constant reminder of the permanent physical pain and misery of unbelievers. Temporary judgments of the beast worshipers under the coming bold judgments will be replaced by the judgment that is eternal. If the ceaseless praise of the Lamb by the living creatures back in chapter 4 is eternal, so must be the punishment of these unbelievers, since the same phrase is used forever and ever. Robert Thomas observes, Revelation 14.11 is the most horrible picture of eternal punishment in the entirety of Revelation. If you've come to this place tonight, maybe you came with a friend or just providentially here, and you don't know the Lord, you need to trust in Jesus Christ who paid your penalty on the cross, died for your sins, rose from the dead, and offers to you freely the gift of eternal life. And you receive that by faith, by trusting in Him. Leon Morris says this, The modern vogue of dispensing with hell has no counterpart in Revelation. You know, there are more and more people these days trying to suggest that hell does not have an eternal aspect, that it's just annihilationism, or maybe it's, it's not physical pain and torment, as we've just been reading about. But you just have to read Scripture and let it speak for itself. Second Thessalonians says, "...in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ." They never tr believed the gospel. They never trusted in, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins. And these shall be punished with everlasting destruction in that day. Or Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
or the passage we looked at in the pastor's conference that I happened to speak on, when he talks about those unbelieving false teachers who, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And forever is a long time. In Revelation 20, we see that finally, praise God, thankfully, as prophesied way back in Genesis 3.15, the devil, the great deceiver, will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Notice where the beast and the false prophet are. Present tense. Well, when did the, the beast and the false prophet, when did the Antichrist and the false prophet get cast into the lake of fire? A thousand years earlier. And guess what? They're still there. They're still there being tormented. So the Bible knows nothing of the doctrine of annihilationism. Back to the text. The third motivation to stand firm is this. It is better to experience the beast's punishment, even martyrdom, than God's punishment. That's the essence of the motivation that John has been uh, revealing. A voice from heaven told John to record that it would be a blessing for the believers at this stage to die as martyrs rather than go through what's going to happen in the waning moments of the great day of the Lord's wrath. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, "Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. In view of their hope, believers in the tribulation should persevere in obedience and trust and good works and faith in God. They should endure. Of course, as we've said, this is an encouragement to persevere, in no way a guarantee that all believers will persevere. Obedience to God's commandments and continuing to trust in Jesus will see the faithful through these days of tribulation successfully. From now on that you see there, uh, these martyrs will be especially blessed because th through their death they will escape the worst of the beast's persecutions in the final days of the tribulation. And notice, and their works do follow them. They will receive a unique blessing reserved for no one else. I love the way J. Vernon McGee uh, elaborated on this. He said, God does not save anyone for His works, but He does reward us for our works. Our works, good or bad, His parenthesis, our works, good or bad, are like tin cans tied to a dog's tail. We can't get away from them. They will follow us to the bema seat of Christ. And then in the next section, I see this, having addressed the 144,000, well done, having targeted tribulation unbelievers, time is short. Believe the gospel and tribulation believers stand firm, the focus now turns to the earth as a whole, which is ripe for the harvest. We see in verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, again, another scene that he's now seeing. And the whole description here in this verse is very similar to what we read in Daniel chapter 7. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap. For the time has come for you to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. The judge, Jesus, judged those on the earth. Again, this is proleptic. It will occur at Christ's second coming when he treads the winepress of God's wrath. And, and he's just seeing a picture of this. Jeremiah talked about this as well. He said, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor when it is time to thresh her. Yet a little while, and the time of her harvest has come. Jesus also likens the final judgment to the harvest of the earth when he says in the wheat and the tares and the parables of the kingdom, the enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Jesus said, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. And all who have not received the free gift that he's offering to the world, he said, If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. All who have rejected that offer uh, will be the subjects of this judgment. Back to the text, Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven and also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and he cried with a, a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine for the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. Prophet Joel speaks of this judgment in similar terms. Put in the sickle. For the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trampled outside the city. And blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. The city in view here is Jerusalem. It cannot be Babylon since the city itself escapes judgment, and as we already saw, the city of Babylon is utterly destroyed. So the Old Testament predicted that a final battle would take place near Jerusalem in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the Kidron Valley, just to the east of Jerusalem. And we read, blood will literally flow up to the height of horses' bridles, about four and a half feet, in some places in that valley. Obviously, many people are going to have to die for that much blood to flow. Blood came out from the winepress of God's wrath for a distance of about 184 miles, 600 furlongs. Again, this is a proleptic preview of the major events yet to happen, but they're about to happen, and that's his point. We see in Revelation 19 that out of his mouth, at the return of Christ, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nation, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And then chapter 15 is essentially uh, just a prelude to this final outpouring of God's wrath in the seven bowl uh, judgments. And uh, so if we go back to my uh, chart here on the book of Revelation, this chapter 15 is a sort of a prelude, a, setting the stage for the bowls. And so I call this prelude to the harvest versus the, the whole chapter of chapter 15. Drum roll, please. It sets the final stage uh, for the final judgments of God just before the second coming. Now, of course, a drum roll normally alerts audiences to some big announcement or event typically positive. Uh, so maybe it's not the best analogy. Uh, Revelation 15 is portending doom that is about to come. And again, I believe it's right there at the end. We don't know how long it is, but we're, not, we're certainly not talking a year or more for these bold judgments to come out. It's, it's I believe, days. It's coming to the, the moment when Christ is going to split the eastern sky and come back. And um, so uh, I don't know why, but I've got two Jaws in illustrations in this message tonight. I, I don't know why. I must have had Jaws on the mind or something. But as I think about what's going to happen, to me it's more akin 
this, these eight verses are not so much a drum roll, but more akin to the unforgettable music in that motion picture Jaws that alerted moviegoers like me. I was a young nine-year-old when I took my blanket and teddy bear with me, and my dad drew... I did. Me and my sister and my parents. Why? I have no idea. They're probably live streaming this, so maybe they'll text me and tell me, but they took an eight- and ten-year-old to a movie like this, but I remember being scared to death. Every time I heard... Every time I heard this, uh, this music, so I forgot to verify, but if we got audio, just listen to this. Do you remember this music? gallows humor, but this is such a weighty moment in human history. People's souls are at stake, and, and this is just a rapid fire leading up to this time of, of God's judgment. So just to go through chapter 15 quickly, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass having harps of God. And then I saw, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you? O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. And then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And that brings us to the bowl of judgments. So again, if you look at the outline of Revelation, now we're right up to the edges of uh, the second coming. And again, I believe, as you see, the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments at the bottom of the screen here, I believe this is not to scale. I think we're dealing with just before uh, the return of Christ. So verse 1 says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Now, that word loud, I underlined it because it's a fun word in Greek. It's the word megas. Very common word, uh, but it's actually used 11 times in this chapter, and 82 times in Revelation. Megas, it means exceedingly great, strong, or important. It's where we get the word mega, right? It's very common, again, in the New Testament, used 240-something times. But uh, when, in English, when, when we want to get attention or really emphasize something, we say something is mega, right? Like mega bucks, right? It's not just your 
ordinary lottery, that's like a big lottery. You know, it's not just a small tax on stupid people, it's a very expensive tax <laughs> on stupid people. Or if we say a mega hurricane, right? A mega, that's a big hurricane, that's bigger than all the other hurricanes. Or a megaplex theater. This isn't just your run-of-the-mill theater. I mean, this is a big theater with lots of seats, and they probably recline. Or, and again, I, I don't know what was going on when I was preparing this over the last month, but I seem to have a running theme in my illustrations. But if we said mega shark, right? <laughs> Keeping with my Jaws theme. You remember back in 2018, the movie The Meg? Here's a couple of posters from advertising that movie. Um, but, you know, these don't really tell the story. To really get a sense of just how big this shark is, the Meg, they called it, uh, you have to see it in context. So I found this picture. Here's a little guy over in the right. Then there's a great white shark like Jaws in Spielberg's. And there's the Meg, right? So Megas, we're talking the judgments that are about to come in the culmination of the Lord's wrath, the overflowing scourge, as the prophet said, are massive, unlike anything the earth has ever seen. So let's just take a look at these bold judgments that are not just big, they're enormous. Um, and what are they? Well, by the way, uh, if you've read my book, What Lies Ahead, which is my eschatology text, one of my students a few years ago pointed out an embarrassing typo in my book when I was talking about the bold judgments. And somehow, and it wasn't caught because it's actually a word, so the editors and spell checker didn't catch it. But instead of bold judgments, I had bowel judgments with an E. <laughs> so if you come across that typo, I want to assure you that a bowel judgment is something altogether different. <laughs> not sure what. It probably has something to do with Taco Bell, but uh, <laughs> it's not what we're talking about. One scholar said, these plagues are God's answer to Satan's last and greatest effort to frustrate the divine rule. To frustrate the divine rule. So the first one is ugly and a painful sores. We read in verse 2, so the first went out and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So the first four trumpet judgments are going to fall on man's environment rather than man himself. The first bold judgment, or as the King James said, vile judgment. See, if I had used the King James in my book, I would have avoided that embarrassing typo. Vile judgment. Uh, but the first judgment is going to fall directly on mankind himself. Uh, foul, ugly, harsh, dangerous, and loathsome, painful, vicious, miserable breaking out on beast worshipers. Wearsby said, it's an awesome thought to consider almost the entire population of the world suffering a painful malady that nothing can cure. Constant pain affects a person's disposition so that he finds it difficult to get along with other people. Human relations during this period will certainly be at their worst. I think that's an understatement. The second one is all sea life is destroyed. All sea life is destroyed. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. So not just one-third of it, as the second trumpet said, but this judgment involves uh, the destruction of all sea life. And then the third judgment, all fresh water is destroyed. 
all fresh water is destroyed. We pick it up in verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs, and they became blood. You know, springs, rivers, lakes, all becoming blood in the plague. People cannot exist very long without water, three days to be exact. He goes on, and I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is their just due. So John hears this praise of God in heaven that's sort of interrupting his narration of these final bowls of wrath. The angels of water, the angel of waters is probably a angel that's responsible for the sea and the fresh water. Uh, uh, scripture talks about how angels and demons can affect elemental forces of nature. It's not just the U.S. government that can change the weather with its geoengineering operations like solar radiation management, atmospheric aerosol injection, cloud albedo enhancement, chemical ice nucleation, sprayed particulate trails, and more. If you're not familiar with that, watch part seven of my series, Spirit of the Antichrist, dedicated to geoengineering and what they're doing. But God poured out blood on the earth dwellers because they poured out the blood of His saints and prophets. So He makes the punishment fit the crime. Pharaoh tried to drown the Jewish male babies, but it was his own army that drowned in the Red Sea. Haman planned to hang Mordecai on the gallows and exterminate the Jews, but he himself was hanged. King Saul refused to obey God and slay the Amalekites, so he was slain by an Amalekite. Here we see the earth getting its just due. He says, And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, True and righteous are your judgments. Even so here, it's like amen. The tribulation martyrs offer their amen from under the altar. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with the occasional amen. Amen? Thank you. Right on cue. Number four, the world's climate is altered so that the sun scorches people. We read, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the power was given to him to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So the fourth trumpet judgment darkened the sun, but this judgment increased the sun's intensity. There's a definite article before men there that you see in yellow in the Greek text. The men in view are evidently the people who have the mark of the beast and who worship him. Faithful apparently will escape this judgment, uh, just as the Israelites escaped some of the plagues in Egypt. So evidently, as Andy said at some point, I don't remember if it was this conference or the pastor's conference, uh, Al Gore was right after all. Global warming is, is true. And it'll be really true after the thousand-year millennium. Uh, climactic changes are going to take place, and and it's going to become much hotter than normal. Robert Thomas points out this is the only chapter in the visional portion of the book that speaks of widespread human blasphemy, the other references being to blasphemy from the beast. So these men have now taken on the character of the God whom they serve. You see the urgency here, how it's getting to the end? Everything's coming to a climax. They blame God for the first four plagues rather than blaming their own sinfulness. And then number five, unusual darkness over the whole earth. Unusual darkness over the whole earth. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. They gnawed their tongues because of the pain. 
They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. The fifth trumpet judgment had involved literal darkness, so too the ninth Egyptian plague. God darkened Jerusalem, of course, the day Christ died. In the eternal state, there will be no more night nor darkness. But here, since the beast's kingdom is worldwide, this is a darkening global judgment. And it seems like the darkness is going to exacerbate their souls that were the first, their, their sores that were the first bowl judgments, making it even harder to treat the pain. If you can imagine just being in constant pain, and some people experience that. They have diseases or conditions or rheumatoid arthritis or whatever it is, where you're, migraines, where you're just in constant pain. Well, here the whole earth is going to be experiencing that. And if you can add to that the complication of not being able to, to see, because <laughs> it's so dark can't find the ice pack or you, you can't, can't find the Tylenol or you know, whatever. It's just going to be particularly difficult. And then number six, the Euphrates River dries up in preparation for Armageddon, the final eschatological battle. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. So the Euphrates River is the northeastern border of the land that God had promised to Abraham's descendants. We read that in Genesis 15. And now God dries up this river that he had previously turned to blood, according to verse 4, so the kings of the east can cross with their armies. You know, if you think back in biblical history, the, God had dried up the Red Sea so the Israelites could advance on the promised land from the west, and then he dried up the Jordan River so they could cross over from the east. Elijah, too, parted the waters of the Jordan, 2 Kings chapter 2. The drying up of the Euphrates River will be an immediate help to these advancing armies, but it will set them up for defeat, as was true of Pharaoh's army. So, if you take a look at this map, based on the description we saw in 1420, where the blood flows for 184 miles, this battle is taking place all over Palestine, not just in the Valley of Jehoshaphat near Jerusalem. The Valley of Jehoshaphat refers to the Kidron Valley, which passes between the Temple Mount of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, which I mentioned earlier. And much of this action will take place in the Valley of Jezreel, according to Revelation 19, the Battle of Armageddon described there. Uh, this valley was the crossroads of two ancient trade routes and a very strategic military site and the scene of many battles. And there God will put huge numbers of people to death. The blood is going to evidently drain out of the Jezreel Valley for a distance of, as I said, 184 miles. And um, the area shaded in blue is about 184 miles from the north top of the screen to the south. He said, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. These next few verses really add further comments to this final or the sixth bowl judgment that reveal that rulers from all over the earth will join the kings of the east in a final great conflict. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet will eventually join in making a proclamation that will mobilize the armies of the world to converge on Palestine. Uh, something proceeding from the mouth there is where I get the idea of a proclamation. So this is the first mention of the false prophet, but he's clearly the beast out of the earth that we saw in chapter 13. So this is the climactic moment in the Luciferian conspiracy that has been at work for millennia. By the way, that's not a descriptive phrase that 
I as a theologian or commentator is giving to it. That's their term for themselves that goes back to thousands of years before Christ in the literature. Whether or not Lucifer actually referred to Christ in the biblical text in Isaiah, that's their name for him, and they believe he's the hero. They believe in Genesis, Satan, the serpent, is the protagonist, and God is the antagonist. And for 6,000 years, Satan has been conspiring with demons and human beings to take over the world. And this is that moment. Now they're all coming together. Demons aren't just kind of doing their bidding in the unseen heavenly realms. Satan's not just sitting back directing traffic. They're all converging in this final climactic moment. David talks about this a thousand years before Christ in Psalm 2. When he says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. That's Christ saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. This is a reference to the Luciferian conspiracy. Back to our text, they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. The three unclean spirits that proceed from their mouths, the ancients of this diabolical tree, are demons. They resemble frogs in that they're unclean and loathsome, and they deceive the people. What they urge them to do for their advantage results in their destruction eventually. These kings from all over the world will gather together to destroy Israel. Satan's purpose in bringing in the soldiers into Palestine in the first place appears to be to annihilate all the Jews. Been trying to do that for quite some time, hasn't he? And when Jesus Christ returns to the earth, specifically to the Mount of Olives, they will unite in opposing him at the campaign of Armageddon. But God's sovereign hand will be regulating Satan's activities, as Zechariah the prophet tells us in Zechariah 14:2. And this will not be the day of Satan's triumph, but the triumph of the Lord God Almighty. He will show himself supreme in this climactic battle. We read in verses 15 and 16, Jesus Christ himself giving us a parenthetical invitation. Again, I see the evangelistic overtones of this. I understand that's some, somewhat uh, an inference. but He says, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. We're getting closer and closer to that one second before the second coming. His second coming will be as a thief in that it's going to be sudden. His enemies won't expect it. They'll be shocked. The same way Satan himself shrieked in horror three days after the crucifixion to find that Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave, and the tomb was empty. Believers who understand the revelation of this book will be expecting His return. And Jesus Christ urged these faithful believers to be watchful and pure. The demons will assemble the kings of the earth and their armies. They'll go out to what in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon, the mountain of Megiddo. And, uh, and there we will see this, this battle. And then finally, the, seven, the number seven, the worst earthquake in history. The worst earthquake in history. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. This final judgment has the greatest impact of all since the air into which the angel pours out his bowl is what humans breathe. The loud voice is once again God's, since it comes from the throne in the heavenly temple that we saw in verse 1. 
With the outpouring of the final bowl, God announced that His series of judgments for this period in history was complete. And I was really moved by William R. Newell as I, as I studied this and read it again and again and, and, and just trying to think what it's going to be like in that moment. And William R. Newell's words really stuck with me. He said, quote, men would not have the Savior's it is finished on Calvary. So they must have the awful, it is done, from the judge. He says, there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Lightning, thunder, this great earthquake, all producing to some extent this incredible desolation that follows. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God, to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. The great city which is split into three parts refers to the destruction of Babylon. And, but the most important event is that the cities of the nations collapse. This huge earthquake will reduce to rubble all the cities of the nations, the Gentiles. The stage is thus set for the second coming of Christ. Obviously, in the collapse of the world cities, there will be tremendous loss of life and destruction of the world's empire. God will give Babylon the cup filled with the wine of the fury of His wrath. She's going to experience the terrible outpouring of God's judgment. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God. There it is again because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. So in addition to the terrible earthquake, and possibly because of it, every island fled away. The mountains could not be found. These are sort of setting the stage for the topographical changes in the earth that we will see in the millennial phase of the kingdom described in places like Isaiah and Zechariah. But we see huge hailstones in addition to the earthquake, about 100 pounds is the calculation there, that fell on people. Um, I mean, that would destroy anybody that they hit, obviously. And in spite of the severity of the judgment and its cataclysmic character, the hardness of human hearts is revealed in the final sentence. They cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. And the final destruction, with the final destruction coming from the seventh bowl of the wrath of God, the stage is thus set for the dramatic and climactic second coming of Christ, revealed in the next chapter, or chapter 19 to be exact. So we see in chapter 7, 18, which we're going to look at in the morning, sort of the description in more detail of Babylon. But let me leave you with a couple of applications here. First of all, my takeaway right off the bat is that God is just. God is just. You know, we looked yesterday at the, the Revelation 4 and 5, who is worthy to open the seal? It's the Lamb, because He was slain before the foundation of the earth. And those who shake their fist at heaven... Uh, in, in bitter anger at God claiming He's unfa unfair even in this day and age. By the way, that's one of the reasons many people do not believe the gospel. I, I, in my new book, Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell, I give ten reasons that might keep someone from trusting in Christ and Him alone for salvation. One of them is just bitterness. But we see as we read all of this that God is in fact just. Justice will be served. Evil will be punished. The earth that we live in is not the earth that God created. Another application that we've already talked about is believe in Jesus. You know, if you've not 
been born again by faith alone in Christ alone, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, the one who took your payment on the cross, paid for your sins, rose from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and offers to you freely the gift of eternal life, you can do that right now. You don't have to walk an aisle or sign a card or raise a hand or do a dance. It's a personal matter of faith and childlike faith. You're simply saying, I'm abandoning my faith in anything and everything I thought could save me, my works, my heritage, my stature, my family, my religion, my church, and I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ, the one who took my place on the cross and Him alone for my salvation. And then the final application is, Boy, after reading that, don't you understand why God's Word calls the rapture a blessed hope? A blessed hope. When we see where things stand and what this world is going to look like one second before the second coming, aren't you glad that we're going to be rescued before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath? Now listen, we may have to face unspeakable persecution and even martyrdom the way that many of God's people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, have for 2,000 years of church history. And the notion that some people mistakenly have that somehow American Christians are going to be rescued at the rapture before it gets too bad is naive and unbiblical. In fact, we're promised just the opposite. We'll face persecution. We've been very blessed in our country not to face that. If the Lord tarries His coming, we're going to have uh, to face some pretty tough things, I believe. But nothing can compare to the devastation of the wrath of God being poured out on mankind, and we are thankful for that blessed hope. So just a couple of the things I want to point out. Uh, if you've not watched my series, What in the World is Going On, that I just finished a couple of weeks ago, I encourage you to watch it. You owe it to yourself to understand what's going on in the world from the, the perspective of God's Word and this Luciferian conspiracy. It's on our website. We also have uh, at our table here the 14-part series, or the 18-part series on Spirit of the Antichrist. If you're interested in that, a lot of the same type of stuff, but not uh, dealing specifically with what's going on right now. And then I've got two new books since last time I was here. I just mentioned Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell. I think you will appreciate a lot of what's in that. And then I have a simple devotional book. And then the only book I brought that's not by me that we have started selling is Canceling Christianity. If you're concerned about all the censorship that's going on, Not By Works, for example, has been banned from YouTube. And uh, anything that we put out uh, that they disagree with, they just censor it. You need to read this because it's by design, it's part of the plan, and it's a really interesting book. So thank you very much. Let me pray, and then I'll turn it back over to Pastor. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are even now just reading through this text somewhat shell-shocked when we think about what's coming, but how grateful we are for your amazing matchless grace and the new life that we have in Christ, the free gift of eternal life. Father, we pray that reading these words and studying the book of Revelation would fill us with an urgency of the hour and a recognition that uh, the gospel is more urgent than ever before, that we would tell everyone we know about how they can have eternal life by God's grace through faith. And so, Father, we thank you for this uh, study tonight and pray that you continue to watch over uh, this conference as we continue through the rest of the story and the good news to come. We pray in Jesus' name.